Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast, a podcast about books and the amazing people who read them and who write them. My name is Nick Siliev. I'm the social media specialist here at Booktopia, and I'm also delighted to be joined uh, as a, with a guest host today from Hachette, Australia, Matthew Kelly. Hello, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Nick. And we're delighted to be, to be joining us on the podcast today by one of Australia's most prominent and successful media identities and writers. You know him from his columns in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and he's here to talk about his new book, Break Morant, The Epic Story of the World War, by Peter Fitzsimons. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for having me. Peter, just, so just for our audience who are familiar with a lot of your work and your background um, in researching um, history, what drew you to this amazing, amazing story of Break Morant? Thank you, Nick. I want to say, first of all, love Booktopia. and <laughs> I love how Booktopia grows. When I first started coming there, they, I was signed three or 400 books, then I started signing six or 700. Last time I was there, I signed 2,000. Love Booktopia. So, drawing me into this story, um, I grew up on a farm at Peach Ridge, youngest of, youngest of seven children, and mum, mum and dad were both from Marunga, and somewhere in uh, the log cabin, we called it, we had a helmet and we had a, a thing and it was always Grandpa Booth's helmet. And that's my mother's father who was at the Boer War. And I think we had a rifle. I, I vaguely remember, a, you know, a disarmed rifle. But I always knew that my beloved grandfather was a part of the Boer War. I never had the brains to ask him about it before he died when I was 12. But I found myself on the Council of the War Memorial uh, a decade or so ago. And among other things, I did want, I think I was there for six or eight years. I voted, hands up, who's in favour of a Boer War Memorial. We have so many things to commemorate First World War, Second World War, Vietnam War, Korea War, even Afghanistan and Iraq, but there was precious little for the Boer War. So I put my hand up, yes, we should put the funds to that. And in May of 2017, I went to the opening of this wonderful sculpture memorial, which is about 300 metres down from the actual War Memorial, on that parade on the way to Parliament House, out on the right, coming out of the Australian, Australian bush, you see these, this sculpture of four horsemen, four men with the horses, soldiers of the Boer War. And as I approached the big crowd there and General Cosgrove, Sir Peter, General Sir Peter Cosgrove, Governor General, was about to open, there is a plaque in front of it. And I walked up and started to read the plaque and it was the letter from a trooper to his mother in Australia talking about the dire conditions about what it was like to be charging forth as the shells are landing and people are going down. And I read it and I looked at the bottom of it and it was written by trooper Frederick Harper Booth, written to his, his mother, Mariah Sophia Craigie McPherson Dunbooth, that is my grandfather, writing to my great-grandmother. My daughter is Billy Mariah Sophia Craigie McPherson Fitzsimons. And... So I was quite sort of stunned that by pure coincidence, I had nothing to do with it. The words of my grandfather, and he was a pretty good writer, I might say, and we had the diary and the letters were used on the Boer War Memorial. My brother James said to me, it is your family duty to bring grandpa to life, to, to use the diaries and letters to write about the Boer War so we can all understand the Boer War. So what I then did was I started reading widely. I, I put one of my researchers on it full time saying, you know, I don't understand it, but I need you to understand it so you can explain it to me with your deep military 
depth, depth and breadth and put it in terms that I, even I can understand. So I get the contours of the story. Breaker Morant was an obvious starting point in terms of focusing on um, a figure that was familiar to Australians. But I wanted also to get to what the whole Boer War was about. And the other thing I did was I contacted my 25 cousins, my brothers and sisters and cousins, descendants of Grandpa Booth, to say, well, I've got Grandpa's diaries and letters, but what other details can you add? And one of, one of the stories was from my brother Andrew, who in 1969 was the CUO, if that's the right word, commanding under-officer of the Knox Grammar School Cadet Corps. He was school captain as well, but he was the Cadet Corps captain commanding under officer. And one day he said, Anzac Day, 1969, he walks from Knox up to Grandpa's place in Coonabarabran Road, Warunga, and knocks on the door. Grandpa, then 90 years old, opens the door, sees Andrew in military uniform and bursts into tears because it all brought back to him the events of 70 years ago. And so it began. So I, I, I like to use, I often start my books from a position of deep ignorance. In that I don't, and I use it in the fact that, that when I was doing, say like Kokoda was my first huge breakthrough book. And I didn't understand how many were in a platoon, how many were in a company, how many were in a battalion and a division. So I sort of work the explanation for those terms as building blocks so I can tell the story. And in terms of the Boer War, I, what I wanted to do was to begin with, to explain or tell me what that was about again. I mean, I knew it was in South Africa. I knew it was sort of basically the British Empire against the Boers. But after that, the detail, I knew very little. Breaker Morant, I knew next to nothing about apart from Bruce Berriford's wonderful film. And what I wanted him to be, you know, if I could have, you know, if I could have drawn a, uh, picture of him, the man that I wanted to write about was, I wanted him to be the man from Snowy River, meets Banjo Patterson himself, his inventor, and he's a fantastic Australian man, and those British bastards put him up against the wall and shot him. And there are people that actually believe that. And so that was my starting point. Very deep ignorance of the Boer War, and I wanted Breaker Morant to be a hero. And so it began using three researchers, mostly occasionally four researchers, with specialty researchers coming in from South Africa and uh, Harare at one point, and of course in London, trying to get the records, trying to get the details of what happened. And to begin with, what, 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 what was the Boer War about? It was basically about two tribes of white fellas trying, fighting over black fellas land. So it was, and, and the Africans themselves are so often forgotten in the Boer War, but with very broad brushstrokes. What happened was Africa was for the Africans up until the early 1600s. The Dutch landed and settled early, basically early 1600s, and the Brits let them have it. They then, it became ever more important as Cape Town was established as a maritime port. So you had the whole trade, the spice trade to the East Indies, and you the, the Brits started to covet uh, getting Cape Town and there was a blue between, I'm, I'm using <laughs> the Australian vernacular, a historian would put it differently, but there was a blue between the French and the English as to who should push the Dutch out and take over the important port of Cape Town. The Brits won early 1700s 
and started to exert control and essentially pushed the Dutch settlers to the north. And the Dutch settlers went on what, what's called the Great Trek. Basically, not so much a journey to the promised land. They didn't know where they were going, but they knew what they were leaving behind. But there was agricultural land to the north that, and they in turn pushed the Africans to, to, to the sides as they claimed the land, built their homesteads and so forth. And what then happened, late 1800s, uh, the worst of all possible things happened for the Boers. They discovered diamonds and gold, at which point the Brits were, well, hang on, actually, you know, we will we'll take some of that too. So there was the first Boer War uh, around, around the latter part of the 1870s and that was settled. And then the second Boer War broke out when that, so there were two Boer republics that were established, the capitals of which were Bloemfontein and Pretoria. And then the second Boer War flared up again as diamonds, diamonds and gold became ever more important. And what then happened was you got the British Empire, the British Empire calling all cars, calling all cars. Britain's, Britain's land where the Boers have attacked us, we want, because in fact, the Boers were the first, a preemptive strike, if you like, the Boers were the first to cross the borders into the British provinces, but it was it was preemptive. It was always going to happen. And so you had the six colonies of Australia. You had the New Zealanders, the Canadians coming from everywhere to the aid of Great Britain. And among the among them was my grandfather was one. Breaker Morant was another. Now, who was Breaker Morant? For a start, to my disappointment, he wasn't an Australian. That was my first. He was an Englishman. <laughs> who'd lived in Australia for 20 years, an extraordinary colourful man, you know, and he was a poet. Like, so he was, he, he uh, well, he was many things, but he was a brilliant horseman. He was a great, he was a, he was a country Casanova, if I can call him that, making it up as I go along, but he had relationships everywhere. His first wife was Daisy Bates, who went on to great fame as one of the first, she was an extraordinary woman, Daisy Bates, but made her name with the people of the First Nations, lived among them, wrote about them, tried to help with their welfare. She lasted with Breaker Morant from memory six weeks. You know, just Breaker Morant was always in trouble. He was always stealing things. He was always gambling. He was always in debt. He was always borrowing money. He was always before the courts and he was frequently in prison. And, but he could write, but he was charismatic. He was loquacious. If you had to have a man at your barroom table nearing midnight in the back of beyond telling stories and ordering drinks, which you'd pay for, that was Breaker Morant. And he was sort of loved, but also reviled by the people that he'd let money to and then disappeared. And in uh, early, I think it was eight, 1894, the great actual, the real, the Banjo Patterson himself gets a letter from his uncle saying, listen, up in Queensland saying, listen, I'm sending this bloke Breaker Morant your way. He's, a, he's an interesting bloke. I don't know what's wrong with him. He's always in trouble. But, you know, I've, I've told him to look you up, but he writes pretty good verse. Three weeks later, an answer came directed in a writing unexpected. And I think the same was written with a thumbnail dipped in tar. And Banjo Patterson looks up and towering over his desk is Breaker Morant. They spend a wonderful afternoon together and Breaker Morant tells Banjo all these fantastic stories, most some of which were probably true, you know, of his life in the bush. And, and so Banjo Patterson's soaking it all up. They get on very well. And at the end of it, uh, ben, uh, Breaker Morant says, oh, look, yeah, I've uh, 
my money hasn't come through, it hasn't cabled through, I'm a bit, bit scared, any chance you could lend me a fiver? To which Banjo Patterson, forewarned by his uncle, says no, but that's the beginning <laughs> of their relationship. And the Boer War then breaks out four years later. And there's, you know, the, the big contingent, Australia is not yet Australia, but there are colonies and each colony sends, sends off, you know, the first light horse, the second light horse, et cetera, et cetera. The very, the Bushman's, Bushman's, Bushman's contingent and off they go. And so Breaker Morant doesn't go in the first, uh, first lot, but he basically, he, at this point, uh, must've been late 1899. He was up, he was in, uh, the, in the Riverina, I think at Renmark and He's, he's burnt so many bridges behind him, there's only one way to go, and that is to get out of Australia. So he thinks, if I go to Adelaide, join up with the South Australian second contingent, you know, off I'll go, and I'll go to England, and I'll stop off in South Africa on the way. This is a cheap way of getting back to England. Off he goes, he joins. When he gets there, he can ride and he can shoot. And in the meantime, Banjo Patterson himself is a... Uh, becomes a war correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. So again, for me, I made Banjo Patterson a character. And he's, he's, he's extraordinary because when I did my book on Gallipoli, and then I, I did three other First World War books, Charles Bean, Sydney Morning Herald correspondent, the great greatest of the lot. You can see in Charles Bean in those books, and you can see in his writing, he heads away to cover that First World War as more English than the English. And he comes back as a full-fledged Australian because he's seen up close, you know, the idea that England was the all-power, all-knowing. Well, that's not true. He can see the Australians fighting well and being sacrificed. And, you know, he come, he's outraged at a lot of what he sees. And Banjo Patterson similarly goes away and he, he views the Boers as he goes away as sort of hairy monsters. And it was sort of like that was part of the propaganda. One of the first Boers that he meets is a Boer prisoner that he meets in Cape Town who beats him at billiards and they talk into the night of matters of, of huge intellectual depth. And so this is the beginning of Banjo Patterson starting to understand and starting to slip into his copy. Look, these men are not monsters and what they're doing is they're actually fighting for, you know, fighting for their own homeland. And by the end of the war, uh, Banjo Patterson comes back to Australia something very close to a peace activist of saying, well, what are we doing there? And one of his, one of his, one of his poems, you know, why did we fight? We fought for the sake of the fight. It wasn't just, you know, we weren't just fighting for Britain. We, we said we were fighting for Britain and England. We fought for the sake of the fight. And so I began to build up these, I wanted some of the early battles to understand because you know, you can get very hairy chested about how good were the Australians and, you know, all of this and no atrocities on our record and we were great. But the truth of it is the Australians were very bloody good, very bloody early because they were men that could ride, could shoot, could live off the land. So the, the, the thing for me that, that the terrain suited them, I mean, you, you're probably too young, Nick, but John Howard once said in 1996, the times will suit me, he meant politically, but, but the, this terrain suited the Australians. It was remarkably similar to the, a lot of the terrain of, of regional Australia. And in one of the first battles, what happens is, and my grandfather has an extraordinary account of this, 
you basically have the the English start to collect themselves and start to push north. And they, they push north with, you know, 100,000 men and they're just going to overwhelm them with numbers. And one of the accounts of my grandfather writing to my grandmother, he said, basically, you could start a horse at the back of the convoy. You could ride all day and you wouldn't get to the front of the convoy. It was that long. And so there's this inexorable push north to push the Boers back, push the Boers back. And there was nothing that could stop them. And the Boers fought well. And they basically, you know, fire, move back, fire, move back. And, you know, they crossed the river, they crossed the Vale River, and they keep keep pushing north. And what then happens, the, the battle that most interested me was the Battle of Ellen's River. Yes, you and, mentioned this one. This yeah, one and, yeah. and it was sort of Australia's Gallipoli before Gallipoli in terms of Australian soldiers demonstrating what they could do when put under pressure. And there's a guy called Phil Hoare, H-O-R-E, who... Who was the, he was the first one, I reckon about 15 years ago, told me the first of the story of the Battle of Ellen's River. And that too was a, was a seed that was planted in my head of one day I should do a book on the Boer War. But without going into the whole setup to it, it ended up with 300 Australians atop a hill with, uh, with some Brits and some uh, Rhodesians. And they're surrounded by 3,000 Boers who've got big guns and firing serious artillery shells on them. And the Australians had coal miners from Queensland among them. So they knew what they were doing. So once the, once the shells start to land, there's only one place to go, dig. And they dig. And they, you know, they get through the day and through, through the night, no one sleeps. They just keep digging and they dig tunnels and they dig, they dig fortifications and they hold on. And they're a supply depot, which means they actually did have supplies that when a bullet came, and, you know, took out a barrel, it was more likely wine or whiskey than anything. You know, they, they were okay, they could withstand it. But anyway, after four days of this, the Boer general sends in an emissary and the emissary comes forth and meets with the English colonel, Colonel Hoare, who is in charge of the Australians and the English and the Rhodesians. And the emissary says, look, from, from my Boer general, we've got you surrounded. We've got 10 times the men, well, we've got six times the men you've got. We, we've got the big guns. You can't last. If you surrender, we will give you free passage to leave here, lay down your arms, leave us the supplies, which is what we want. Free passage, you'll, you'll live, you'll survive. And Colonel Hoare gives the answer that I cherish. He says, you don't understand. I'm running, I'm, I'm, I'm running Australians back up on that hill. Even if I wanted to surrender, and I don't. If I went back up the hill and told those Australians that I surrender, they would slit my throat. We don't surrender. And I tell you what, he wasn't making it up because you go to the diaries and the letters of the Australians, they were having their own meetings. So if this bastard, if this bastard surrenders, we will fight our way out. We're not giving up. And it's a real, really, you know, it's a strong account. I must say from the people that have read the book, I get wonderful, particularly wonderful reaction to the Battle of Ellen's River. And uh, yeah, I suppose one of the things, Nick, in this that I enjoy is not the right word, uh, but I feel honoured to do that sometimes in my books, I like to take people that have completely been forgotten by history. They're not even a footnote to a footnote of history. And sometimes the account of what they did and how they did it and their fate leaps 
out of the page from you. And there was one guy, Lieutenant James Annett, A-N-N-A-T, from Queensland, who I kept seeing his name in these different diaries and letters. And I, so I said to my researchers, this is the guy. I want, I want, you know, I want to make this guy L and B, as I call it, live and breathe, live and breathe. Who was this guy? Why did they all love him? And why did they grieve when he was, well, what, what happened was in the first three days, when shits were trumps on the blind and the shells are landing and people are dying, the one guy that keeps them going is Lieutenant Janet James Annett from Queensland, father of two children, mid-30s, and he's the one that rallies the troops and dig here and do this and get the supplies forward, and we're going to lead an attack there. And I think it was at the end of the third day, right at the end of the third day, he's crossing, he's, he's, he's out in the open very briefly, and there's a bang. And he lived very for a very short time thereafter, but he was killed. And so for me to try to bring him to life, you know, this is a guy that was a beloved person who died fighting for the country, even though I must say it's not a war I believe in. But it was something that you just try to bring the man to life. And uh, so there was that, the Battle of Ellens River. So what then happens is in the course of the war, the Brits, the British Empire, the troops of the British Empire, they fight, they're fighting a conventional war, which is they just, they take the ground and they look to take the towns and they take the cities and they take the capital cities and the two capital cities they take of the two of the, of the Boer republics, they take Bloemfontein and they take Pretoria. And the way a European war works, once I've got your capital, it's game over, mate. And the Boers were, well, we're not going to play like that. We're, the, we're going to keep going. We're going to fall back to the regions. We'll live off the land and you can come and get us there. And so where Breaker Morant came in, Breaker Morant, at, through much of this early time, had been a messenger, a runner a, for, for one of the war correspondents, but, and then briefly thereafter, went back to, went, actually went to England and he found that Breaker Morant, while he was in England, in Australia, he was sort of a big deal. You know, he'd frequently be in the papers, they'd run his poetry, there'd be news items about where Breaker Morant was last seen. And he was sort of a bit of a legend in Australia. He goes back to England, he's more anonymous than a lost dog. So he thinks, well, the only thing I can do is go back to the Boer War. And he gets back to the Boer War in early 1901. And at this point, what's happening at this point, Lord General Kitchener, the great, well, when I say great, he's up and down, but the all-powerful English British General Lord Kitchener has taken over as the, the supreme commander of all British forces in South Africa. And the only way that they can beat the Boers, he decides, is basically we'll burn them out. We've got these, we've got these Boer guerrilla armies um, living off the land and living off friendly Boer homesteads. Well, we'll, we'll make, first we'll make a rule, any Boer homestead bound to have given any sucker, any supplies to the Boer guerrilla army will we'll burn you down. And that's the way it started. But in the end, it was pretty much scorched earth. We'll burn the lot. Very, not quite that, but close to it. And, you know, there's an account of my grandfather where he talks about going into a homestead and we burnt them out and he write, he's writing to his mother and he, they burned them out and the women and the children were weeping. And my grandfather must have been a hard man. I'm a, I knew him as a very loving grandfather and he was a very good man. Frederick Harper Booth, Sydney Siders may know uh, 44 Bridge Street in Sydney, which is a 
eight-story eight Art Deco building. That's known as Booth House, or Grandpa built that in the 1930s. But he writes to my great-grandmother and says, look, they're, they're very upset. We've had to burn them out. But, Mum, this is a, this is a tough war. We're not going to win this war until we finish, finish off their homesteads and stop, stop the Boer guerrilla army. And so what then happens is the, Boer, the war is ebbing to a close uh, because, but there's still the resistance out there. So, but what they need is to basically fight the Boers like the Boers. They need men that can absolutely go out for weeks at a time, bring them in, bring the Boers in with patrols, wipe out those that resist and so forth. So they formed the Bushfelt Carboneers in the early months of 1901. Breaker Morant is, uh, joins up with them. And the idea is we're going, to, we're going to send you out to the Badlands. You are to take in whatever prisoners you can find and bring them in. Um, and if there's any resistance, if there's any units out there, boy units, you, you wipe them out. And so that, that was the setup to the whole Breaker Moran thing. And what then happens is uh, that his best friend, uh, his best friend is Captain Percy Hunt. And in every breaker account that's been written, and there's been, there's been a few, happily I say, hasn't been done until I've done it, <laughs> but it's built up that, you know, that Captain Percy Hunt and Breaker Miranda are absolutely best friends. They're such close friends that they, they had travelled back to England together uh, in that interregnum of the Boer War, and they were due to marry uh, sisters from Devon, and so that when Captain Percy Hunt was killed, that's what sent Breaker around the twist. And that's been repeated in every, every, every account. Because I have the advantage, I have the advantage that other authors don't have. One is I use serious kick-ass researchers, two of whom have got military PhDs, and I'm writing in the age of the internet where you can go into archives, where you can get, it's extraordinary, the digital representation you can get of war records of old newspapers. The son of one of my key researchers, Barb Kelly from Albany, her 19-year-old son, Lachlan, was able to definitively prove by showing me four documents signed by Captain Percy Hunt in the months he was meant to be in England to say that's a nonsense. And here was one of the problems. Beyond being a liar, beyond being a thief, and beyond being, being you know, running up debts and running, running, running around all over the country causing mayhem, Breaker Morant was an absolutely unbelievable, inveterate liar and very clever lies. And so when we're trying to get to the bottom of what Breaker Morant was all about, what he actually did and didn't do, you're peeling off layer after layer after layer of lies to try to get to the core, to try to get to the original documents to say, this is what happened. So in those middle months of, of 1901, the Bushveld Carboneers are out there, uh, are out there and there's very little overseeing. There's very little, uh, you know, regulation around them. They're, they're hard men living in hard times. And some atrocities start to occur, even in the time of Percy Hunt, where, whereby the first, you know, the first atrocities where they don't take prisoners, but they shoot prisoners, even though they're unarmed. Captain Percy Hunt, then, then in, uh, I think it was the 2nd of August, 1901, launches an absolutely suicidal attack at midnight on a heavily armed Boer stronghold and he's killed. Breaker Morant wasn't there and Breaker Morant is told, your best mate, Percy Hunt's gone down. 
this point that the Breaker Morant story really takes hold. Bears vengeance, rides through the night, gets the men there. He comes to believe that Percy Hunt's body was mutilated either before or after death. You know, Jesus, the amount of emails I had flying back and forth between researchers on trying to get to the bottom of whether or not he actually was mutilated, but I don't believe he was in the end. But anyway, that's it's almost an aside. The point is they then they then go out after the boars that Percy Hunt and his men had attacked. They capture one boar, Vissa, and and he's wounded, wounded in the leg. They, they capture him. They, the idea is to take him back to the fort um, and, you know, put him in, put him in, put him in prison. But Break Moran says, no, we're going to court, court martial him here on the spot. And we're going to shoot him. And the soldiers say, you, you, you're what? We're, we're what? We, what do you mean we're going to shoot him? We're going to court martial him? You know, no, he's been wearing, he's been wearing uh, one of our uniforms. We're going to kill him. Anyway, big resistance from the soldiers. But Break Moran is strong enough that he actually basically orders a firing squad and he is shot. And so begins the string of atrocities that occur under the command of, of Breaker Morant. And it goes on. And then there's six boars. Again, what's happening is they're burning these boars out from homestead after homestead. And the boars that are, you know, in the guerrilla armies can no longer live. And a lot of the boar families can no longer live. So they're coming in and they're surrendering. And at one point, six boars come in and Breaker Morant gives the orders and they go out and they're about to be shot when a, when a, uh, a pastor, uh, you know, a preacher passes by uh, and Daniel Heese was his name, father of two children, really fine man. And the six boars that have been in prison, speaking in war, say to him, Daniel, we think we think these guys might be about to shoot us. Daniel, he says, no, no, that can't, that can't be. You're, you've surrendered, you know, white flag, you'll be okay. And then makes a protest to Breaker Morant, who is indeed about to have them shot dead. And then Breaker Morant gives the orders to his, to his right-hand man, Peter Hancock, basically go out and kill him, shoot him, shoot him dead. And the six boars are shot, and so it begins. And these atrocities go on, where where Breaker Morant and his men, you know, they, they at one point children are shot, another at another point a man and his two sons are shot. These atrocities, these are unarmed people. Some of them absolutely civilians, never fired a shot in anger at a British person, but it's happening on the watch of Breaker Morant. And what then happens is, and this for me is the untold story of the whole Breaker Morant saga. The heroes, who are the heroes? The heroes are the guys, the men, the blokes in Breaker Morant's unit who get together and say, this is not us. We're a straight, we don't shoot unarmed prisoners. We don't shoot children. We, we don't do this, this is not us. And so the first fellow that complains the first, the first one of them that that you know indicates that he may, that he may may make a complaint on this. They go out on patrol. He takes a bullet to the back of the head. Who shot him? One of the boars. But there's no boar. One of the boars, you know. And so the guys that make the complaint are taking their lives into their hands. And the uh, the uh, there's two particular men one Christie, another Cochrane, who get together and start to organise the others. Are you with us? 
Cochrane, who's a justice of the peace, forms up a legal letter to send to the Colonel back in, back in Petersburg to say, this is happening on your watch. Here is the list. Here is the, the, the list of the six horrible things that Breaker Morant has been organising. This is happening on your watch. You know, there, you, Breaker Morant shot six surrendered Africana men and boys. He shot the, the fellow that complained, um, who he had shot, Trooper Van Buren by, by Peter Hancock. Uh, he uh, there was the there was he shot a wounded prisoner of war and so forth and so on and they sent this letter off and as Breaker Morant came in the next time that's what happened that they were arrested and they were put on trial for their lives and the the thing for me that the untold story is people when you attack Breaker Morant people are saying well how dare you. You know, this is this this was a man sent out to the bad badlands, living off the land. Things happen in wartime. Yeah, yeah, they do happen in wartime. But we don't shoot unarmed prisoners. We don't shoot kids. Okay, there's there's a good start. And the heroes of the piece are the men who put their name to that letter. There were 15 of them. They signed the letter, taking their lives into their hands. And what they're representing is Australian honour, Australian Australian heroism, honour, this is not happening on our watch. And so one of the uh, fellows, every time I do a book, which is fairly frequently, I try to find, I often do, you know, go into subjects that, as I say, have been covered before. But I try, like Ned Kelly, like Gallipoli and so forth, I don't care. I'm doing it in a different fashion. I'm telling the story differently. And ideally, I'm turning up a lot of stuff that hasn't been turned up before, courtesy of researchers in the internet, to try to get to the core of it. And in the case, in this case, the guy that is the expert, like in the case of, of uh, my book on Ned Kelly, the expert was a guy called Ian Jones, the late, great Ian Jones. And he was 86 years old when he helped me and he'd been studying uh, Ned Kelly for 80 years. But, you know, when I finished the manuscript, I give Ian Jones a red pen and my manuscript and say, go for your life, please find every error you can find. You know, three weeks later, the answer came back with, you know, 50 errors. So I get them out before I put it out. And in this case, the guy who helped me, like Ian Jones did, even before the manuscript was finished, was Frank Shields. And he's about 76 years old. He lives not far from here. He's been studying the whole Breaker Morant thing for 50 years. And he said to me, well, you've added, in your account of this, you've added something that's never been, a, been added before. And I said, what's that? And he said, anger. You are angry at what Breaker Morant did. And I thought, well, you're damn right. You're damn right I'm angry, and I am angry, and Frank's now angry. Well, Frank, Frank, you know, it's fantastic. Couldn't have been better and more helpful. But it, it, you look at what Breaker Morant did, it is unforgivable. And then you have the, the extraordinary courtroom scenes and the scene of the execution. So there is the court-martial. And I was, I've, I've had some good reviews in my time, and I've had some bad reviews in my time of doing books. But the best review I've ever got, is the one I just got for, for this book from Bruce Beresford, who was behind the uh, Breaker Morant film. And he gave me a wonderful review in The Australian, um, basically commending me for having turned up so much fresh stuff. And I guess for being angry at Breaker Morant and saying, well, yeah. you know, I mean, there's still to this day a move to pardon Breaker Morant. Give and what do you say to those people, Peter? Sorry? What do you say to the people who want to pardon Breaker? 
There are well, okay. There are those who want to pardon Breaker, and there are even those who want to honour Breaker, who say, you know, this was a good man. Okay, no, he was not a good man. He shot unarmed people. He took prisoners who had surrendered. He had children shot. Okay, this is not somebody we honour. This is not somebody we pardon. Over, you know. And the thing about what I say to those people that that want to do this is. If, if you were to pardon him, what do you say to the 15 men who took their lives into their hands by signing that letter? You know, the first guy that said he was going to do it took a bullet to the back of the head. These 15 men wrote the letter to say, this is dishonouring Australia, this is a bad man, you must court-martial him, and you seriously want Australia 120 years later to say, yeah, look, uh, we got that wrong. We don't know, we, we, you know, despite, despite the court-martial at the time, despite there being a court process, witnesses back and forth in the court-martial, despite going through all that, 120 years later, we know better. Bullshit. Perfect. Breaker Morant was a psychopathic murderer. End of the story. Mm. Perfect. A, yeah, it sounds like an intense piece of Australian history that we like, yeah, is. many people I, need to know more about. It's, it's, it's good that you're passionate about it. And it's well, good I'll, that tell you, I'll tell you, just to finish, I'll, I'll tell you the, the story that, that he was, you know, it's hard to say a good thing about a psychopathic murderer, but he was a bloody good poet. You know, a lot of his stuff that he wrote really stands the test of time. And a good horseman. He, he goes through the court-martial and the, the, scene in, uh, the scene in the film is really something. And it's pretty, pretty bloody accurate in the court-martial where they talk about the drumhead court-martial for, uh, for Visser, the first of the prisoners that they'd captured after the shooting of Percy Hunt. And, you know, the court-martial, who says he's guilty? Guilty! All right, shoot him. And the British prosecutor says to Barack Moran in the courtroom, so was it, uh, was it a court-martial court like this? Like this, says Barack Moran. No, no, it wasn't like this. No, there was no chairs. There were no tables. There was no, no roof over our head. No, and we got him and we shot him under rule 303. And that is the exact transcript that in, you see in the movie is exactly what was said. Anyway, they find him guilty. He and Peter Hancock, his offsider, um, they, are, they, are, they are told, well, you will be executed. Another one, George Whitten, is to be in prison for life. And he wrote the book Scapegoat of the Empire, which again, while also being a valuable resource, that book, Jesus, there's a lot of porkies in that. I mean, it was very self-serving. It took a while to work out, you know, what half was nonsense and what half was true. But Breaker Morant and Peter Hancock, due to die the following day, Peter Hancock writes to his sister in Bathurst. That's the only person he can think of to write. Doesn't write to his wife, doesn't write to his children, writes to, writes to his sister. Breaker Morant more or less stays up all night, dashing off poetry, final letters. And the following morning at dawn, there's the tread of the, of the firing party in the corridors, out in the, out in the courtyard. And they take Breaker Morant and Peter Hancock. They go out and just as you see it is in the film, in a moment of curious intimacy, walk out to their deaths, holding hands. There are two chairs put against the wall. They offer Breaker Morant the blindfold. He refuses it. And they say, well, last cigarette. And this is the part that I love most. He takes out the silver cigarette case. He gives it to the captain, of the, the sergeant of the firing party. And he gets his last cigarette. Now, you and I, Nick, if given the last cigarette, and we know that at the conclusion of this cigarette, we will... Uh, we will uh, 
yeah, our shot. life, <laughs> life would end. be over. You'd be, mm. yeah, you'd, 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 you'd draw that out. And you'd go till your fingers were burnt. Yep. But in this case, with Breaker Morant, with extraordinary elan, gets halfway through and flicks it away. And, and that's it. And then he's about to be shot and he says the immortal words, well, not very immortal as they turned out, shoot straight, you bastards. Don't make a mess of it. Very similar to the line from Ned Kelly uh, in terms of Elan, chutzpah, such is life. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story. Mm, it sounds like uh, it was amazing to put together as well. Um, thank you so much, Peter, for coming on and, uh, and for chatting about Break Morant. And it sounds like a, a great piece of history that all Australians should get a copy of. Um, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Um, so for all of our listeners, uh, Brent Morant is published by Hachette Australia and you can get your copy of the book right now from utopia.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.